0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K E Y S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Honestly, even just giving talks, I feel a little weird about. I'm like, I'm about community and connection. The fact that you asked me to talk at people for 15 minutes, not my favorite. (laughs) Yeah. So at the end of my talk, I was like, by the way, I feel like it would be irresponsible of me to be up here without giving you all a chance to connect with each other. So in the break between me and the next speaker, I would love for you to turn to someone who you don't know and ask them, where is a place where you really feel like you belong and why? Like super easy question. And the room just exploded with conversation. And I had a security guard come up to me afterwards and he said, Jillian, I have been working at this event since it started. I have never seen a room where nobody left in between speakers. This is the first time I've seen everyone stay. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, because they had permission to talk to each other. <laughs> right.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and
2: this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
6: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash
5: ACAST.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Jillian, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah. So I think I came across your work by way of your publicist. It's funny because we get such a high volume of pitches these days. I'm always like, okay, how did I find this person? But it's almost always like a hell yes or a hell no. And when mm-hmm. I saw what you were up to, I was like, oh yeah, I definitely want to talk about this. But uh, before we get into that, given the nature of your work, I want to start with what I what I think is a really fitting question. That is what social group were you a part of in high school? And how did that shape and influence the person that you've become and what you have ended up doing with your life?
1: <laughs> That's such an interesting question. So I guess the social group I was a part of in high school, I was a part of a few different groups, but I would say the biggest thing I identify with is being a overachiever. I was one of those like taking three AP classes. The list of the things I did was insane. I'm just going to list all of them. It's like mildly concerning, but literally at one time I was in three AP classes, executive produced my shoot, my school's news show was on the volleyball team, was in two different choirs, and ran a nonprofit in my school. So I was doing a ton of stuff. And as an adult, I'm really working on undoing that overachiever mentality.
0: Mm. Where did that come from?
1: So I think it's two things. One is just the culture of the town that I grew up in. I grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut, So a very affluent town where even though I went to public school, it was a really, really well-funded public school, the kind of place where all the kids are competing to go to an Ivy League school. And I kind of darkly joke that kids were their parents' trophies or, you Mm -hmm. know, you would like be at a parent's house and overhear the parents kind of bragging about their kids like, well, my kid got this score on the SATs and they're doing this many extracurriculars and they got into this school. And while it wasn't overtly told to me, I realized that in the culture I was in, more achievements meant more respect. And the same thing applied in my own family where My, mostly my dad was just really excited by talking about accomplishments. It's kind of how we bonded. We had those conversations around career and the stock market. That's, that's what we connected on. And so I knew for me to really connect with my dad and have a close bond, I needed to be constantly achieving and Again, now as an adult, I know that's not completely true. He'd love me no matter what. And it is also true that I got more attention and more praise when I was performing really well, Mm -hmm. which also when I was in high school, it led to a total mental breakdown where I I was anorexic. I was constantly having panic attacks because the pressure I was putting on myself to just be this A-plus student super high achiever was just way too much.
2: So, you know, as somebody who grew up in an environment like this, um, one, I can relate because Indian families are pretty much exactly the same. Uh, You know, it's like doctor, lawyer, engineer, and it's like, which med school did you get into? Like, we literally judge (laughs) everybody by the fruits of their labor, even though our Mm -hmm. most important spiritual text literally says you're entitled to your labor, but not the fruits of your labor. The irony of that has still, kind of just not been lost on me, but Mm -hmm. as somebody who grew up in this kind of an environment had that kind of an outcome, I wonder, um, how you think about something like this in the wake of, you know, college admissions scandal. I mean, me and my sister, we, we pretty much, we will look at the people who get into Berkeley, people who get into Stanford, the places where we went to school and we're like, no way in hell we would get in today. Mm. Um, you know, we're nowhere near as impressive. And yet people who are far more impressive than we are are getting rejected. And, you know, for you, it clearly led to a a mental breakdown. So I wonder, one, how do you think about that in the context of what we've seen in the last year? Um, Two, did your parents ever realize like, this is where you were being pushed to? And, you know, how did that shake out? And then I don't know if you're a parent, but I would be curious what you would say to parents listening uh, about these kinds of conversations with their kids.
1: Ooh, interesting. Okay, so to be honest, the college admissions thing—I'm not totally sure what you're talking about. Is it okay. that students who are really, really high achieving are not getting into the same? Well, so there's happens, a big scandal.
2: You know? Um, sometime this year, you know, that pretty much made headlines everywhere to the point where basically, like the richest one percent, you know, we're talking like Aunt Becky from Full House, um, basically bribed. Uh, some you know college admissions counselor to help get their kids into school, and it was all completely revealed. I mean, Felicity Huffman—we're talking celebrities and billionaires mm-hmm. were bribing mm-hmm. their kids way into school—and the stupidity of that is is still not, still baffles me. But. Um, you know, but the thing is that there's this such a pressure to achieve and to go into these environments um, and also thrive there. And it just carries into our adult lives as well. So I wonder, you know, when you look at something like that, having grown up in the environment, because mm-hmm. these are kids who are literally headed to this kind of schools you're talking about. Yeah. It's just a much worse, more amplified version of your experience.
1: Completely. And I'll, I'll also say that I definitely was a a more subtle part of that problem where I had a tutor who was paid to help me apply for college, where we literally had a spreadsheet of all of the colleges that I was applying to, what types of essays I was going to write, what scores I needed to get into that school. And just looking back at the time, all my friends had someone like that. So I didn't think it was strange. And now it be like, wait a moment. I literally had a tutor to help me apply for college. Mm-hmm. That is an unfair advantage if I ever heard one. Yeah. And so... I guess the only thing I can really say, because I'm not super well-informed on this, is just that there is way too much of a connection between privilege and access to education. Mm -hmm. And as someone who now I'm looking at Union Theological in New York as a place where I might go and get my Master's of Divinity, I'm kind of playing with that. And just seeing how expensive it is. And this is the thing I've been really frustrated about this week is, how expensive it is to get a degree for a job where you are not going to be paid that well and you want to just help people. Mm -hmm. It's bananas to me.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, don't even get me started on that. But, you know, so then what about, you know, the anxiety attacks, the panic attacks? Like, did your parents find out, uh, you know, and how in the world did you navigate that? Because I think to some degree, that is probably happening to every kid in your situation on some level. It just Mm -hmm. doesn't manifest externally. Or it does, and it's like 20 years later, and you lose your mind.
1: Yeah. So what happened at the time was they did the best they could with the tools that they had, and they saw the external problem of, okay, Jillian has an eating disorder, so we take her to a nutritionist. And so I was meeting with this woman every week who was a nutritionist. I wasn't allowed to see her on my own, so I saw her with my mom, Which meant that I couldn't really talk about my emotional problems freely. So it was a huge band aid on this giant, deep cut because it's like, yeah, you can force me to eat more food, but that's not solving this deeper issue that on a cellular level, I don't feel like I'm enough. I don't feel like I'm lovable. I don't feel like I'm beautiful. And that wasn't a thing that my parents and many parents are not equipped to handle because their parents didn't know how to handle conversations like that. Mm -hmm. And so now as an adult, I actually, I took the initiative to get into family therapy with my parents to really change the narrative of our family and start to kind of have some shared language around how to talk about emotional issues and how to dive into our feelings because I don't have children, but if I do have kids I want to make sure I'm really armed with the tools to let them know that having emotions is okay Mm -hmm. and being able to be comfortable with them because kids are smart. They can tell when someone is not comfortable, if you're feeling really sad or really upset or really angry. And in my case, I knew that if I had those feelings, I was not going to be met with skillfulness. And so I just shut them down. Mm.
2: So the sense of feeling like you don't have enough, you're not enough, you're not beautiful. Like the lack of enough, I think, is a, a sort of prevalent theme, not just I think in childhood, but for many of us into our adulthood. Uh, and it's a really bizarre paradox. You know, I had Ryan Holiday here. One of the things that he said is this: you know, we we have this sort of you know constant goalpost that keeps moving. It's like, oh, I hit the New York Times bestseller. Well, now you know what? It's being number one on the list. Or you know, it's like, oh no, the next level is. You know, hit a home run or no, hit a home run in the World Series or hit a grand slam. Like It just keeps moving and moving. And the thing that struck me most was when he said, "You know, on the aggregate, it's a good thing because it drives a lot of achievement. But on the individual level, the truth is that it's a lie. And it, that really stayed with me. And yet, I, it's funny because some of these overachiever tendencies, uh, I know in myself, have also been largely responsible for my ability to get things done and to accomplish some of what I have. So I wonder, you know, when you think about this from that experience, where is the line between, okay, this is a healthy level of motivation to this is a darker side of ambition.
1: I think the answer to that is what happens when you don't work? What happens when you're not achieving things? Because for myself, I had a moment where some of my, freelance writing jobs went away and suddenly I didn't have any work for a few weeks and realizing I have no idea how to fill my time when I am not working and I immediately sink into this exhausted sad place which might be a sign that I was just overworking myself for years but also it's a sign that I'm lacking skills that every adult needs which is How do I relax? How do I have hobbies? How do I just hang out and have hours long conversations with my friends without checking my watch? It's Mm. just. It sounds kind of strange, and as I'm saying it, I don't know if I totally believe it, but for myself, leisure feels like a skill, work it. work <laughs> is my default mode. I'm like, yeah, it's very easy for me to wake up and make a checklist and do all this stuff. It is way less easy for me to wake up and be like, "Cool, I'm just hanging for 3 days."
2: Uh, I can relate. Really, you know, I I you know, I, I come back from a half a day of snowboarding and friends like, "What are you going to do?" i was like, "I'm going to work, but I've been at the mountain all day." Yeah,
1: <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I'm not an animal.
2: Yeah. Um uh, Well, that's, that's a, uh, you know, one of those things that I think that every one of us struggles with to some degree. So I wonder with the context of all this, what was the underlying message that your parents gave you about work and sort of making your way in the world?
1: So I always joke with my dad that if he was an action figure, the catchphrase he would have is what's your bullseye. So we would always be talking about like, okay, what is my career goal? And in order to get to that place, to have, it was typically when we talked like a really big company, like if I want to work at NBC, what are the internships that I need to get? What are the skills that I need? What are the connections that I need in order to make that happen? And everything I do is aiming towards that specific goal, which in terms of business is super helpful because... As a young woman, I was lucky enough to have a father who said, literally anything that you want to do in your career, I believe that you can do it. I believe you're smart enough to do it. You have the skills to do it. Not a lot of people are lucky enough to have a dad like that. So in that sense, I'm really blessed. And again, relaxation was just kind of foreign to me. Like We're one of those families where if you're not up early on the weekends... You're going to be pulled out of bed, and like you have errands to do and chores and all that stuff. Yeah. So just kind of lounging around. If I was doing it, there was kind of a accompanying feeling of guilt. Mm-hmm. I imagine do you resonate with that. Oh
2: yeah, we. I, I don't remember <laughs> ever sleeping past nine o'clock, and even to this day, my mom will start telling my dad get up at seven thirty, and I'm like, wait a minute, you don't even have anything to do. Why? You're like,
1: why? Why are you doing We're this? Man,
2: sleep. Uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> what ended up leading to this work? Like, what did you do in college that kind of led you down this path of, of building community? But one other thing that I, that I wanted to ask you, you had mentioned sort yeah. of this ability to have long conversations without checking your watch constantly and to be with people. I wonder, uh, you know, and part of me is I wonder if I have this just cognitive bias to kind of rail on this, but what role do you think technology has played in all of that?
1: It's a really good question. I think my automatic easy response is always technology has made it harder for us to connect with people. And I recently had a conversation with someone who challenged me a little bit on my own privileges, where I am a able-bodied straight woman who most of my identities are, if not completely mainstream, mainstream enough and so there's not a lot of parts of me where I feel like I need to find a community on the internet to mm. feel understood and supported. Yeah. No. Uh, which it's a point that I always try and make because I see the conversation online so much of like technology is addictive and bad and it's tearing us away from each other and all of these things. And the thing that I see less often is for uh, stories of the people who feel so misunderstood like they're in a wheelchair they're queer and they live in the south and they don't feel like they can talk to anyone around them that technology is also saving lives in that sense so i always try and be the devil's advocate just because i i haven't heard that so often mm-hmm. and i i like the argument yeah. uh but in addition to that i got introduced to the world of really beautiful heart-centered deep community spaces at this program called Camp Grounded, which is a summer camp for adults with no technology. So you go and your phones are taken away from you and they go so far as to not have any clocks the entire weekend. So Mm. you're completely present with people and it's also a sober weekend. So there's nothing taking your brain away from what's really going on. And it was the most open, playful, silly, embodied I had ever felt. And while I I honestly don't think having the tech taken away was a huge part of it, it was definitely a part of it. Because if there was mm-hmm. ever a moment where I was sitting by myself and I was just like, man, I'm feeling kind of socially awkward right now and I yeah. don't want to sit with that feeling... Or I feel afraid to start a conversation with this person I don't know. So instead, mm-hmm. I'm going to make myself unapproachable by looking at my phone. Right.
2: So, what led to this work? Uh, just out of curiosity, and I, you know, it's funny because I, you know, when I went and read your website, I saw that you built communities for businesses, but you've also written this book about mm-hmm. you know how we apply this to our personal lives. And given that I just moved to a new town, I'm going to basically use this time incredibly selfishly for my own reasons. Um, Whatever problems you have, so many other your, people have. Yeah. So um, first off, you know, how in the world do you get into something like this as uh, a career? Uh, because it's not one of those things where you open a guidebook or go to a college counselor and say, hey, this is what I want to do. <laughs>
1: You're like, I want to study loneliness. And like, What's yeah. wrong with you? Um, so the story is that when I was in college, I fell into improv and sketch comedy, I went to Boston University. I was the president of our school's sketch and improv group, The Callbacks, for three years. Comedy Kids were my main friend group. And while I loved it and we had so much fun together, looking back, I realized that having activity-based friendships was not enough for me. And I was avoiding harder conversations The people in my life, most of the time, I didn't feel comfortable going really deep with them or talking about the things that I was struggling with, which is not on them. It's totally on me. I could have found deeper connections. I just, at that moment in my life, did not know what was possible. And when I was nearing graduation at college, I actually worked really hard so that I could graduate early which is just such a sign of someone who is like not happy with their college life. And I moved to New York city as soon as I possibly could. And when I got here, I kind of did the exact same thing, which is hang out with comedy people in New York city. So totally in the, the UCB crowd did all the improv sketch classes, was in an indie improv team, all the things. But still felt disconnected. And I think it's just because of the point of my life I was at where I'd just graduated from college. I had this feeling of, I can completely change who I am. And so I just made this promise to myself the summer after I moved to the city where I said, all right, I'm just going to keep going to events and experiences by myself until I really feel like I've found my people. But looking back, I'm like, wow, I was so brave I went to festivals by myself. I went to retreats by myself. I showed up at events and parties by myself and slowly started collecting this community of people who inspired me to live a better life. And that was a thing that I did not know was possible to look around me and see these people who are just kind, open hearted people. They're silly. And they're trying to make the world a more loving and just better place.
4: Mm.
1: And it's one of those things where I feel like you hear all the time people say stuff like, it's hard to make friends as an adult. And also New York City is a lonely place. Those are two things that I hear constantly. And while I understand them, both of those sentences annoy me so much because words have power. I have a friend who says words are like magic spells. And so if you say New York City is lonely and you believe it, that's going to be your experience of New York City. Instead of saying New York City has a bunch of amazing people and I can't wait to meet them. Say, okay, you just haven't found the right people yet. And that takes work. And it's, this is a huge thing that I just constantly talk about is We assume that we should know how to make friends. We assume that we should know how to find our community. And really, it's a skill. So there's all these people walking around with this shame around their loneliness and this shame that they feel like they don't know how to connect with people. And they think that they're weird for that. When in reality, Mm -hmm. most people are like that because they don't even know that it takes just like with romantic relationships, time and attention and energy to find your right people and curate those relationships.
2: Hmm. Wow. So many questions come from that. Uh,
1: <laughs> That's my
2: rant. It, it, well, it's funny because you know, when you're talking about the improv group, I, I couldn't help but think of an experience I had in college. You know, I went to Berkeley, which is this incredibly diverse you know, school. And you know, I remember getting to the end of my senior year. I had one extra semester. And I met some girl at, who went to Stanford. She came to Berkeley to hang out. And she forgot her ID. And she said, don't you know anybody you could call? And I said, "This is going to sound horrible. <laughs> well, I don't know any white people. Like, I don't understand how that's even possible." And it's so funny because I look back now at the sort of social dynamics of college, and I think to myself, "If I did this again, I literally would approach it like Van Wilder. I would join every club I could join, you know, <laughs> and I would not, because I, I was shocked at how ethnocentric a place like that could become. Because when you have large populations of your own ethnicity, and these, mm-hmm. and a lot of big schools are like that." It's really easy to gravitate towards your own kind.
1: Completely.
2: So, you know, it's funny that you mentioned sort of this feeling of of navigating loneliness because I know that, you know, a lot of people have said this is sort of an epidemic and it's funny that you had even mentioned, you know, going out to events by yourself. I did some work with a dating coach who was also a guest here. One of the interesting things was not working on my dating life as much as it was creating an interesting social life, uh, you know, by doing exactly a lot of what you were suggesting. So, and it's funny you mentioned loneliness because that was one of the big reasons I left San Diego. Even though I had friends who were close by you know i i thought to myself I'm like wait a minute i don't see most of these people they're like available once every two weeks i have a friend who lives in colorado and i see him more often than one of my close friends who lives two exits down from me <laughs> you know, what's wrong with this picture mm-hmm. and of course knowing what i did from all the happiness researchers or ah, researchers that social connection is really kind of at the core of our happiness it was i thought just like okay wait a minute my closest friends are all in colorado i think it's just time for a move let me see how that changes things but with that in mind um, I am going to basically leverage this time very selfishly and have you tell me how to build an extraordinary community in life uh, here in Boulder.
1: Great, we're doing we're some like, that okay. way. It you're gives down. you a
2: tactical example to work with, and I get to be completely you know, and benefit from it.
1: Okay, so I love having this conversation so much. Obviously, the the number one tip that I give people, which is like my power tip, is to volunteer at the things that you're excited about. So, for example, when I moved to New York City, someone told me about this community called Medi Club, which is a meditation that has storytelling involved and group sharing and a dinner. And so it's just this, like, it's 150 people. It's an amazing room. But the problem for me was that the first time I went, I walked in, I had nothing to do, and I was just faced with a sea of strangers. It was like these beautiful linen clad, like boho, hipstery people in New York city. And I felt so, I felt like I was dressed wrong. And like, I had no idea who to talk to and just so awkward, but I really liked the energy of the room and who, who was there. And so for a few months I started checking people in at the door and just for anyone who has social anxiety at events, especially big ones volunteering is the best way to feel comfortable because you have a purpose. When people come in, there's a reason for me to talk to them because I have to check them in. And it sounds kind of silly, but you're in a position of authority. People see you as someone who knows what's going on literally just because you have a clipboard. So you Mm -hmm. might feel more comfortable talking to people later. You've already said hi to them when they come in. You know people who are in the room. Also, if you have financial issues, you don't have to pay. That's always great. And the last thing is that when you volunteer, you get to meet the organizers of an event. And organizers are the people who are typically the best connectors in a city. And so if you say to them, hey, blah, 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 like, I'm looking to make new friends. Is there anyone in this room who you think I should meet? Is there any other event in the city that you think I should go to? Those are the people who know what's up. And now they can give you some of their time because you've been really useful to them.
2: Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Trini. I hope you're liking this episode of the Unmistakable Creative. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melina, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com
0: slash newsletter.
3: And Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
5: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
4: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Great. Okay, so that's one starting point. What else? Well, let me me, throw something at you that I thought was kind of funny. So I had a friend who also lived in San Diego, was kind of fed up with it. And he was talking to me about the fact that he had recently become a downhill mountain biker and that he really liked it a lot. But then he said, yeah, he's like, but it's not really a great way to meet girls. And I feel like literally, if you yeah. talk to most guys who are single about this conversation, mm-hmm. on some level, like my friend, uh, you know, Raj Nathan, he's like, dude, he's like, networking events are bullshit. They're just an excuse for guys to hit on girls and not seem like they're hitting on girls. And I'm like,
4: totally. yeah, I
2: think there's some truth to that. So mm-hmm. I wonder what you would have to say about that.
1: The So I run a newsletter called The Joy List in New York City. And it's two events for every day of the week that has facilitated connection. And -hmm. anyone who knows me knows that I am obsessed with facilitated connection because it, for me, is what helps make an event really connective and community-centered and helps people really go deep with each other quickly if they want to. Because, say, for example, you go to a yoga class, you can talk to someone afterwards, but it feels kind of awkward. It's a little weird. You don't know if the person wants to talk to anyone. But if you go to a yoga class followed by a group conversation followed by a dinner, which is an actual event in New York City called Flow and Tell, you have a reason to talk to people. You have a literal prompt that you are given to talk to people and guarantee those conversations are going to be richer and longer and more satisfying than any quick random conversation you would strike up with someone at the back of your yoga studio. Mm -hmm. So... Finding things that have facilitators is the best way to find a space that's really connective. Yeah. And I know, I think an issue for some people is that they can feel kind of hippie. Like, oh, okay, there's this event in New York City called Vulnerable as Fuck, where you go and this woman named Veronica gives you prompts that are kind of more vulnerable than usual questions, and you talk to someone you don't know about it, and then you keep switching people. And it's, In my opinion, it's pretty genius speed dating that is not marketed as speed dating. And as a woman, I've met so many men there because it's saying, okay, this guy is comfortable enough in himself to show up in an event that has the word vulnerability in it and is down to get a little uncomfortable and to share things about himself with me if he wants to. And... So if there's stuff like that in the city that like you're in or the cities that your guy friends are in, it's something that I recommend just trying out at the very least. You're
2: making me think I should just start it if it doesn't exist.
1: Totally. She has teacher trainings online that you can do and then just run your own event.
2: Okay, that's genius. She may be somebody you have to refer me to cuz I as a potential podcast guest cuz that sounds fascinating.
1: Completely. And she's actually I'm always so excited when I see my friends who are community builders and their profiles are starting to blow up because it's just like, <sighs> I have mixed feelings about it. Like, on the one hand, it kind of annoys me that people who are community builders need to focus on building their personal brand in order to get resources and attention for their community. It's like, why can't the community just be great and you don't need an individual star to focus on? Yeah. But at the same time, it's saying, oh, okay, people are seeing this work that she's doing as important and valuable. And they think that her message is important and valuable. And so they're giving her speaking opportunities and financial resources and helping her with trainings. Like, that's really important.
2: Yeah. So I, I love this idea of facilitated conversations and connections. Uh, you know, I, I, like every couple of months, we host, you know, dinners where we invite former guests of the show to come together. If I'm in a city where they're all at, we'll probably do one in New York. So I'll definitely <laughs> invite you when we're there. But uh, the, so, you know, we've talked about that. We've talked about volunteering. Uh, it, and I also, you know, when you're talking about that, I realized, like, oh, that's why CrossFit works so well. That's why mm-hmm. people like it, because it it is a facilitated conversation. Like you inevitably are going to talk to the people that are in your gym. Yep. Um, Okay, so anything else that you would suggest?
1: So another suggestion that I give, and to me, it sounds very obvious and very easy, but I also recognize I'm the type of person who is very comfortable publicly asking for help. I know that is not the case for everyone, but I suggest using whatever social media platforms you have, if you have any, and letting people know that you're looking for more friends. So saying like, hey, people in New York City, I'm looking to make more friends. I would love to meet people who are into meditation and dancing or whatever your interests are. Who do you got for me? Yeah, Because people love to help. And the easiest way to help is literally just to tag someone in a Facebook post and be like, oh, yeah, I know this person who lives there. Like they love meditation. And Mm. some of those people, of course, might not be down to talk or they might not be looking for new friends. But chances are some of them will. And people who are friends of friends, typically you tend to get along with them a little bit better than just some random human off the street. And even just doing that could be a huge way to start your community in a city. And it blows my mind how many people just never ask for the thing that they're looking for. Because to me, it sounds so obvious, but I'm the kind of person who is literally asking for help for things on the internet every day of my life.
2: That's amazing. Uh, It's funny because I never thought to even try that in San Diego. One thing I wonder is you mentioned, you know, some people aren't really up for making new friends. And sometimes I think that my old friends are kind of like that. And, you know, I moved around all the time when I was a kid. So I always say, like, I think subconsciously, it's no coincidence that I've built a platform and made a career and used, uh, you know, my primary medium is something that ensures that I'll never stop meeting new people. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, you know, I think subconsciously, that's why I chose to do it in this format of all the things that I could have chosen, because being a writer is fairly solitary, but getting to talk to you and, and other people like you every week, I just keep, you know, meeting like more and more interesting people. Yeah. so I wonder with age, uh, what you've seen, you know, in your own work and how that changes for people. And, you know, because, you know, to me, it's like, well, well. Some people have told me that, oh, when you're, when you have kids, the people that you end up becoming friends with are your kids, uh, you you know, when your kids have
1: friends, it's their parents that start to become your friends. Totally. And so I can't speak as much to people with kids, but I can speak to couples because I think it was last year I put out an offer for what I called social calendar curation, where I would have a a zoom call with someone for half an hour and just ask them what they were struggling with in New York city in terms of finding friends and community. Mm -hmm. And then I would create a little custom social calendar for them. And it was so fun. And it also really helped me understand the problems that people have. Cause I think I ended up talking to like 50 people. Wow. And I was so surprised that the first two people who signed up were both couples who had signed up together Mm. because they were saying, and it was funny because in my mind, I'm totally brainwashed into that idea of, oh, when you have a romantic partner, everything in your life is perfect and amazing. And it's like, you're, <laughs> can you're completely fulfilled. Uh, and then I was like, oh, wow, these people have this thing that I desperately want. And they have the experience of finding each other and then kind of isolating. And suddenly all the people who used to be their friends, they're not really close to anymore. Or they feel like they're going to events and they're kind of pickup scenes for single people and they don't feel like they belong. Hmm. And having conversations with them around, okay, how can you kind of go back to those friends who you have lessened those relationships a little bit and start to build them back up? Where can you go as a couple and feel really comfortable starting to talk to new people? And it's just, it's really interesting because I feel like, especially in American culture, we, there's this academic term that I found called Amato Normativity which means that we are obsessed with romantic love and think that romantic love is better than any other type of relationship. Hmm. And so it makes sense that when we find a romantic partner, we're like, cool, great, accomplished that. I'm good. Friends are a luxury. I don't really need them. <laughs> yeah, And I kind of compare it to having a nutritious diet where we know that we need to eat a bunch of different types of foods in order to be happy. And on the same token, we need to have a bunch of different types of relationships to have a healthy community in our lives. Mm. But not many people actually do that. No.
2: Okay. One, if you're still offering that service, we'll have to talk off, offline because, <laughs> that, you know, if I could outsource this to somebody that, and somebody who's as good at it as you are, that sounds amazing. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll take that offline. But um, <laughs> you've done this in the context of businesses too. And, yeah. So I wonder now, you know, especially as we're building this online listener tribe that is completely off of Facebook on Mighty Networks, um, how do you how do you take this and apply it to the world of business and brands? You know, I looked at some of the brands you work with, stuff that we've all heard of, like Moo, you know, business cards and all the all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. how does it how does it apply to the world of business? Like, what let's take unmistakable creative as an example. Like, we one of the things that I really would love is to have this sense of community become stronger with our listeners.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think. The biggest hard lesson that I have learned is that with online communities, it's very easy for them to center, again, around a star. American Mm -hmm. culture, we're so obsessed with having stars and celebrities and people who we see as special. And so therefore, we as normal people, we don't have to take responsibility. We don't have to do anything because this person is special and they can do everything. Uh, And so with online communities, especially when they're centered around a personality like you, to say, okay, this isn't about me. This is about empowering all of you to become leaders. That's Mm -hmm. what a really, truly healthy community is. And I actually learned this, strangely enough, I went to this church planting conference called Exponential. I've gone to it twice now, not because I'm trying to plant a church, but because (laughs) I was just fascinated by what I could possibly learn. And it was total tangent, but it was an amazing case study for going to a community that's completely outside of your comfort zone with people who are totally different from you. Because mm. I learned a ton and so many of my judgments around religion were completely taken away. Mm. But the the emphasis that they give is that as a pastor, you don't want to be the star. You as a leader, your job is to empower other leaders. And I see this in online communities is a person is putting all of this pressure on themselves to create all of this content And they're constantly producing and they're wondering, oh, when I ask people questions, why aren't they answering? Or, oh, when I ask people to do stuff, why aren't they doing anything? And it's because they didn't start by empowering people to begin with, saying, hey, we're going to start this online community. I would love to have a Zoom call with some of you and see what do you want this to be? What would you be excited to lead? If you could run an event in your city under this name, what would you make? What problems do you have that you feel like nobody understands other than other creatives? And just making it about them from the very, very start, which is so not what we're taught.
2: It's funny that you say that because that is literally how the copy reads on the page for our Mighty Network. This is literally like our, you know, community manager Milena literally did exactly that. You know, definitely. You know joining was like this is not about us it's about you and every week we do profiles on the people who are our listeners and the community um, you know, it's basically about helping them change, um, you know, leveraging our content, but very, like very little of it, you know, I mean, I think the only time she did a profile on me, she's like, Hey, I'm kind of, you know, I've got a low pipeline. She's like, do you mind doing this? And I was like, yeah, fine. <laughs> but she, other than that, that was like the only thing that centered around me that we really had done. Um, and then of course, you know, teaching stuff, but it's, it's interesting when to hear you say that because I, you know, I saw how she did it. One thing I realized was that somebody else had to own it. It couldn't be me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the reason it has actually succeeded is because of what she has done. It, yeah. Like If I had been you know, trying to run it, it would have been yet another thing that I'm trying to do in the midst of producing the show and writing and doing everything else.
1: Mm-hmm. Completely. And one other thing that I'll add is I also noticed that companies will try and say like, okay, we have a group of people who have a similar interest, so we're just going to get them all together in a room and they'll do the rest. And that is such bad planning. It's, mm. it's the thing that Priya Parker in her book, the art of gathering calls yep. being a chill host yeah. saying, Oh, okay. Uh, I don't want to put too much pressure on people to do anything that they're not comfortable with. So I'm just going to let them hang. And right. like I said, with that group Medi club, if I just walk into a room filled with 150 people, I'm a very extroverted person and I still feel super awkward and uncomfortable uh-huh. So saying, okay, what is the purpose of this event? What are people trying to get out of it? How do we want them to feel when they leave? And how can we facilitate this experience so that they will connect with each other?
2: Well, it's funny because I, you know, I get invited to go and speak to event organizations a lot, and you know, this is something that comes up over and over again. I was like, you know, if you want an environment, if the whole purpose of coming here is to foster innovation, creativity, and connection, then. Mm-hmm. Didn't, wouldn't it make sense not to sit here listening to keynotes all day and trapping us in a damn hotel ballroom?
1: Uh, um, oh my and, God, you're speaking my language. Truth. You,
2: know, truth. you, you mentioned Priya Parker. I love that book because that's mm-hmm. kind of how I thought about events. But I told him like, literally every little thing is an opportunity to facilitate the connection. Like your name tag literally could be the thing. Like we did this. We're like, okay, on you know under your seat is an index card. There's a really strange question that you have to ask somebody you've never met. Um, And it's a really uncomfortable question. Like, tell me about the first time you got your heart broken. And (laughs) by the way, this is your restroom break. Go take care of this. And it was amazing because in a matter of 10 minutes, every wall just comes down. And it's funny because I don't see event planners do this, especially when they're these like big sort of corporate events.
1: Completely. I think it comes from a, one, thank you for doing that, because I guarantee you there were so many people there who also planned their own events. And then they saw how lit up people got and they took that idea to their own event. So a thousand event planner brownie points to you. But also that I think it's coming from a place of fear of like, oh, what if this is too vulnerable? What if people are uncomfortable? But- that fear is also saying, I don't trust my attendees to set their own boundaries. So I'm going to act like their mom and set them for them. And (laughs) that's not like connections. Don't start with you being super, super protective. It's like, when you're a kid in your basement, if your mom just sat down there with you and your friends, you're never going to have a good conversation. So I just always encourage people. And like I, an example of this is I, I spoke at this conference called startup grind last year and I at the end of my talk, because honestly, even just giving talks, I feel a little weird about I'm like, I'm about community and connection. The fact that you asked me to talk at people for 15 minutes, not my favorite. (laughs) Um, So at the end of my talk, I was like, by the way, I feel like it would be irresponsible of me to be up here without giving you all a chance to connect with each other. So in the break between me and the next speaker, I would love for you to turn to someone who you don't know and ask them, where is a place where you really feel like you belong and why? Like super easy question. And the room just exploded with conversation. And I had a security guard come up to me afterwards and he said, Jillian, I have been working at this event since it started. I have never seen a room where nobody left in between speakers. This is the first time I've seen everyone stay. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, because they had permission to talk to each other. <laughs> right.
2: It's it's kind of amazing that you have to give them that little prompt, but it's amazing just by designing that one little question or even designing an environment that leads to that, mm-hmm. you, know, you can create that. Um, wow. So you know, we've <laughs> talked about it in terms of centering around a, a person or you know a, a personality, which I think is is you know the curse of like sort of the online content creator, or the internet celebrity. But what about products? Like when you work with somebody to like moo, how does that play out?
1: That's a really good question. I think it's going from thinking about the product to thinking about the stories of the people behind the product. So Mm. for Moo as an example, with Moo, I actually just got to profile people who use Moo products. And so I would find people who used Moo products in really beautiful, innovative ways and bonus points if they were using Moo products to connect people to each other. And I was interviewing them. But... If Moo said to me, hey, also we want you to create events. We want you to create an online community for us. I would just absolutely love to say, okay, what are the emotional stories behind the reasons why people use Moo products? And so one really great example is people who are looking for jobs. Communities, I think, are a really great place for people to address shame. And I'm literally making this up as I go. But with... Job hunting, there's a lot of shame around, I can't find a job, I'm like going places and I'm giving people my business card and it feels really scary and it's really awkward for me to talk about myself. So what if they had an event where people got to practice networking and pitching themselves and they talk to a partner and then their partner goes and pitches that person to other people? Like it's a really simple idea and it's just so funny because I see Like you said, companies who have lots of resources using these same boring event templates over and over and over again, where people are talking at you, or it's a panel where people are just talking to each other, saying very safe, non-controversial answers. And it's so boring. And I just want desperately for companies to create spaces that are a little bit riskier, but the reward is so much higher because people can actually connect. Does that make sense?
2: That makes all the sense of the world. Uh, I mean, I think you and I are speaking the same language. Like I, when I did plan a conference, I basically created the conference that I always wanted to go to. Mm -hmm. Bless you. (laughs) Mm. Wow. Um, One last question around this, and then we'll wrap things up. This is something I was just thinking about. Uh, You know, I had Jenny Tates who wrote a book uh, called, you know, how to be single and happy, which was science-based strategies. And one of the things that I remember distinctly reading in that book is, you know, some people like, oh, I'm just going to move because I haven't met somebody. Now,
4: Mm. interestingly
2: enough, um, my brother-in-law, same thing. He'd spent years in San Francisco. It wasn't that he didn't have friends, but one of the things he said was, I got to get out of here because I think I'm kind of in a, a rut of a routine. Like, it's just the same thing over and over. And he said, just breaking that pattern was essential. And he apparently had this genius idea to move into like this Melrose style place where he thought he was going to be like an eternal bat- or bachelor, you know, enjoyed like the bachelor life. And a week later, like a week after he landed in L.A., he met my sister. Uh, and so I, I wonder, you know, as somebody who does this, what is your view on that? That whole idea of, OK, I got to move if it's really going to work for me.
1: That's really interesting. I imagine that the psychology of that is kind of, oh, OK. I'm landing in a new place. Now, suddenly, I have permission to do totally new things, to talk mm. to people. Because I know when I move to a new place or I'm in a new place, it's so much easier for me to start conversations because yeah. the reason is, oh, I just moved here. I don't know <laughs> exactly. anybody. Yeah. And so you can say that. And it's like, I wonder if he could play an experiment with himself in the place where he used to live. Yeah. If he literally just woke up one day and said, okay, I'm going to pretend like I just moved to the city. Yeah. And- I'm going to. I mean, he could literally go as far as telling people, <laughs> but that might be a weird <laughs> lie. But yeah. like, hey, I'm new here because I mean, I don't know, new is relative. Right. And just, I feel like the the feeling in your body, it's so much easier to talk to people when there's a reason. Yeah, that's a. I have a story in my book where I was going to this women's event called Mama Gina in New York City, and I was heading towards the Javits Center. And I just knew that there were thousands of women going to the Javits Center. So anytime I saw a group of women, I would smile at them and say, oh, are you going to Mama Gina? Because I was like, I know there's a giant group of us going. And none of the women I talked to were going. (laughs) All of the women I had an amazing conversation with. And one of the women was like, oh my God, Mama Gina's book is what got me to like quit my job and start working for myself. And we exchanged phone numbers on the subway. And it literally was just because I thought we might be going to the same place. Wow. And I, I always try and remind myself of that whenever I'm somewhere is I, there's literally any reason for me to start talking to this person. It's just, uh-huh. I'm getting it in my own way.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, we literally just got to Boulder this week and I went out to a bar last night. I met the bartender, you know, and literally that was the conversation. I just moved here. And he's like, oh, you write books. He was like, well, he's like, you know, I would, I'd love to pick your brain. And I was like, Well, and he said, like, we have this amazing Sunday brunch. I was like, well, hook me up with some Bloody Marys and I'll share all the writing advice you want.
1: And
2: I made a new friend, you know, and we literally, every restaurant we go to, it's kind of the same thing. And, and I realized, you know, when you're in the place that you've been in for so long, you don't do that. You're literally like just in your routine of, okay, let me order my food and get the hell out of here.
1: Completely. And people can tell, like when you're excited and open to talk to people, it's way easier to start that conversation. But, and I'm so guilty of this. If I'm in my, oh, my headphones are in my ears and I'm not making eye contact with anyone and I'm not excited to talk to people. Why the hell would anyone be excited to talk to me?
2: Right. Wow, Uh, I I feel like I could talk to you all day. Like I, you know, it's like oh, so you know, I have a list of you know problems a mile long that I think you could solve, but I won't do that to (laughs) you or to our listeners.
1: This podcast,
2: yeah, no, I'm not going to do that to you, our listeners. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
4: Ooh,
1: okay, I think that someone is unmistakable if. I feel more hopeful when I'm in their presence. Like if I'm talking to someone and I feel suddenly open to more possibility and just more open myself, more loving, if I feel like a better version of me interacting with this person or their work, I think that's unmistakable.
2: Mm, Amazing. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights and wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about uh, everything that you're up to?
1: Okay. So my book is called Unlonely Planet. You can find it on Amazon. And my personal website is thatjillian.com or I'm at thatjillian on any social media. And my newsletter, The Joy List, which you can contribute to no matter where you are in the world. We have a place where you can say where you feel like you belong. We have a little directory of belonging. It's joylist.nyc or at joylist.nyc on social media. Hmm.
0: They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
3: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much.